Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Training of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program and today's workshop. Um, and today's uh, program is, um, is is titled uh, "New Perspectives in the Treatment of Advanced Skin Cancer, Advanced Basal Cell, and Squamous Cell Cancers." And this is a part one of a two-part series on living with advanced skin cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations as well as uh, skin cancer organizations and it's really our pleasure to have so many of you on the call today. We have on the call today over 382 participants on the call and you come from all of the United States, from all different regions, from rural and suburban and urban areas as well. And we have also international participants from China, India and the United Kingdom. So we're a bit of a global call as well. Um, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company and Pfizer. So I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now we have those are the best speakers on today's program. I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Laura Dunn. Dr. Dunn is Assistant Attending Physician, Head and Neck Oncology Service, Division of Solid Tumor, Department of Medicine, Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Dunn is going to present an overview of advanced skin cancers, including advanced squamous cell cancers and advanced basal cell cancers. And she will also present new treatment approaches and um, emerging data from ASCO and clinical trial updates. It's really now my pleasure to turn this program over to, Dr., to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Dunn. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the call today. Um, as mentioned, I'll review um, cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas and basal cell carcinomas. In terms of their overview, um, what are our standard of care treatment approaches and what are our new um, emerging treatment approaches based on recent research. The incidence of non-melanoma skin cancer has doubled from 1994 to 2006 in the context of an aging population. In addition to age, UV exposure as well as immunosuppression are risk factors for the development of these skin cancers. I'm going to first discuss cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma and then move to basal cell carcinoma. Cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas are the second most common malignancy in the U.S., uh, with over 200,000 to 400,000 individuals diagnosed each year. As you probably know, most cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas have a very favorable prognosis and are cured with a surgical procedure. Oftentimes, it's Mohs surgery. For localized, um, meaning that it's just uh, a focal lesion on the skin or locally advanced disease, meaning that it involves the local regional lymph nodes, surgery is the cornerstone of management. Postoperative radiation is often indicated for high-risk surgical pathologic features that confer a high risk for recurrence. And these high-risk pathologic features include positive margins 
um, around the primary tumor, extensive perineural spread or large nerve involvement, as well as local regional lymph node involvement. At times, we'll consider adding a radiosensitizing agent, which is oftentimes chemotherapy that sensitizes the tumor to the effects of radiation. However, the indication for adding a radiosensitizing agent or concurrent chemotherapy is less clear in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. A very small percentage of patients with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma will develop advanced disease. Advanced disease includes unresectable locally recurrent disease um, involving the skin or the local regional lymph nodes that's no longer amenable to curative intent treatment with surgery or radiation. Additionally, advanced disease can include distant metastatic disease, meaning that the cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma has traveled through the bloodstream beyond the local uh, site and spreads distantly to other parts of the body, such as the lungs or the liver or other distant organs. Um, so just to recap, advanced skin cancer um, means that it's skin cancer that's unresectable locally recurrent disease that's no longer amenable to curative intent treatment or distant metastatic disease. For cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, there's no standard of care. Given that it's a very rare disease in the advanced setting, there's very limited data from clinical trials to guide treatment decisions. When I discuss management of advanced cancer um, with any patient, I discuss three main categories of systemic treatment for advanced disease. Systemic treatment is treatment that goes into the bloodstream and affects all the cells of the body. The three main categories of systemic treatment for advanced cancer are chemotherapy, targeted therapy, and immunotherapy. And I'll address each of the three categories. For chemotherapy, um, which is therapy, as you know, that affects all rapidly dividing cells um, and is not targeted specifically to the cancer cells, there are a few classes of agents um, that have shown some activity in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. These include platinum agents, such as cisplatin or carboplatinum, taxane therapy, 5-fluorouracil, and methotrexate. The NCCN, or National Cancer Comprehensive Network, recommends cisplatin monotherapy, or a combination of cisplatin um, with 5-FU. Uh, personally, for chemotherapy, I often give carboplatinum with a taxane agent such as paclitaxel. Um, I'll next move on to targeted therapy, um, meaning that um, it's a molecule that specifically targets something that's specific to the cancer cell. And in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, most targeted therapy um, that is used involves targeting of EGFR, or the epidermal growth factor receptor. And cetuximab, or Herbitux, is uh, the most common uh, EGFR targeting agent used in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. 
There have been multiple phase two trials, meaning the small trials looking at efficacy um, that have shown response to EGFR inhibitors and locally advanced disease, um, but few have shown a response in distant disease with uh, EGFR inhibitors alone. We oftentimes will combine an EGFR inhibitor, specifically cetuximab, with chemotherapy, uh, specifically a platinum or a taxane agent. Um, cetuximab or other EGFR-directed uh, inhibitors are given in a non-selected fashion, meaning that we don't do um, analysis of patients' tumors to see if there are certain changes in the DNA or mutations um, which will make them respond to this type of targeted therapy. As um, cancer therapy has become more precise or individualized, we oftentimes do molecular analysis of tumors, meaning that we look um, at the DNA level to see what changes have occurred, which are called mutations, that allow for the growth of tumors, and we specifically try to target those changes. In skin cancer, and specifically cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, it's very hard to develop a targeted therapy because these tumors tend to be what we call hypermutated, or there's many, many mutations that have allowed for the growth or propagation of these tumors, and there isn't one or two specific driver mutations that we can target. Uh, this is why developing targeted therapy for cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas has been a challenge. However, the hypermutated nature of these tumors um, makes them good candidates for immunotherapy, um, and that's the next category of treatment that I'm going to discuss, which is a new treatment approach for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, the immunotherapy that has been developed for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma is a class of drugs called PD-1 or program death one inhibitors, and I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with pembrolizumab or Keytruda, um, as well as nivolumab, also known as Octivo, which um, are PD-1 inhibitors. Um, and in simple terms, blocking um, PD-1 allows for stimulation of the immune response. Uh, how I describe this activity to patients is that all of our immune systems have natural inhibitors in place. And the reason we have natural inhibitors in place is to prevent um, our immune systems from attacking our healthy tissue. Otherwise, we'd all have autoimmune diseases. What PD-1 inhibitors do is they inhibit a natural inhibitor, so they're basically taking off the brakes on one's immune system to put one's immune system into an overdrive state in the hope that it will attack the cancer. Um, there's good rationale for using this type of immunotherapy in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Um, one, because as mentioned, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma has a very high mutational burden. Um, the mutational burden in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma is twice that of melanoma, um, where these agents were initially developed and efficacy was demonstrated. Um, 
also cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas have a lot of immune infiltrating cells in the tumor. Uh, additionally, immunosuppression is a known risk factor. We know that people with chronic leukemia, such as CLL, um, or patients who've had organ transplants or, and are on immunosuppressive medication uh, are predisposed to the development of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. And additionally, direct immunosuppressive effects of ultraviolet radiation contribute to the development of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Um, so there's good rationale for the development of immunotherapy in this disease. Um, Regeneron um, has developed a PD-1 inhibitor called um, semiplumab, and the phase two data um, have just been reported. Um, they were reported last week at ASCO um, and are published online in the New England Journal of Medicine and will be published um, as a, in manuscript in the journal next week. Uh, so this is very exciting data of uh, semiplumab, which is a Regeneron's PD-1 inhibitor, uh, which included patients who had either nodal involvement or distant metastatic disease um, and the overall response rate was about 50%, meaning that there was major tumor regression shown in over 50% of people. Disease control was about 60%. Um, and the durability, meaning that the response uh, lasted for quite some time, and over 60% of people experienced disease control for over 16 weeks, which for a systemic therapy is fairly impressive. Um, Dr. Lakator is going to discuss the toxicities, but the toxicities due to autoimmune um, uh, toxicities or endocrinopathies, meaning effects on the glands from the immunotherapy, was similar to what's seen from other agents um, in this class. And the most common toxicities were fatigue, diarrhea, and nausea and severe toxicity occurred in about 10% of patients. From this data, uh, this drug is expected to gain FDA approval shortly. So we do expect um, immunotherapy to be an FDA-approved drug and standard of care for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Um, I'm now going to shift to basal cell carcinomas. Um, basal cell carcinomas are the most common malignancy in the U.S., um, and the estimated incidence is over 3 million. Um, UV exposure is the major risk factor. Most patients with basal cell carcinoma are cured with surgery, and only a very small percentage develop unresectable locally advanced disease or metastatic disease. In terms of basal cell carcinomas, targeted therapy does play a role. The reason for this is that all basal cell carcinomas are characterized by um, aberrant signaling in the hedgehog signaling pathway, so a molecular pathway that allows for cellular proliferation. And two hedgehog pathway inhibitors uh, called vismotigib and sonitigib um, have become the standard of care. Um, from the phase two clinical trial of vismotigib, 
the overall response rate was 30% in unresectable locally advanced disease, sorry, 30% in metastatic disease, excuse me, and 43% in unresectable locally advanced disease. And the median duration of response was 7.6 months in metastatic disease and 9.5 months um, in unresectable locally advanced disease. I'm going to let Dr. Lockature talk about um, the side effects and toxicities of hedgehog pathway inhibitors, um, but they can be significant, specifically um, the majority develop muscle spasms, hair loss, uh, altered taste, um, and many develop weight loss. Um, in patients who uh, progress on hedgehog inhibitor therapy or do not tolerate hedgehog inhibitor therapy with vismotajib or sinitajib, there's no standard of care. Um, immunotherapy is now being explored in basal cell carcinoma, and the rationale is very similar for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in that basal cell carcinoma have a very high mutational burden or changes in the DNA Immunosuppression is a known risk factor, um, and the development is due to UV radiation, which has a direct immunosuppressive effect. Um, Regeneron is running a, a phase two study right now, which is ongoing with uh, semiplumab in patients with advanced basal cell carcinoma who've either progressed on hedgehog inhibitors or were intolerant to hedgehog inhibitors. And in the first in-human study with this drug, um, response was seen in a couple patients with basal cell carcinoma. So immunotherapy is also promising for basal cell carcinoma. Um, so that concludes my portion. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Dunn. That was really wonderful and a very um, informative and actually um, incredibly uh, just excellent um, presentation and, and sets the stage for the entire program today. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And I just want to remind everyone that there will be questions, a chance for you to ask questions during the Q&A. So start to kind of note them down for yourselves so that you'll be able to be ready for them. Our next speaker is Dr. Mario Lacatur, Dr. Lacatur's Director, Oncodermatology Program, Associate Attending Physician, Department of Dermatology, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's Associate Professor of Dermatology, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Lacatur is going to address managing treatment side effects, including discomfort and pain, tips for caring for your skin during cancer treatments, sun safety tips, guidelines for communicating with your healthcare team, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lacatur. Thank you very much, Carolyn. And I would like to also thank all of you today on the call for taking the time to hear more about the amazing developments that have taken place in the field of advanced squamous cell and basal cell carcinomas. So uh, as uh, Carolyn mentioned, I will be speaking about uh, side effects related to the medications that are being used, as well as uh, some other safety tips during and after your treatment. As Dr. Dunn very clearly uh, described, there have been remarkable advances in the past five to 10 years in the treatment of advanced basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas. And the treatments are now resulting in these remarkable results that uh, have led to increased attention on quality of life issues, such as these uh, side effects that we will be speaking about. 
So to begin, Dr. Dunn describes certain uh, older chemotherapies such as carboplatin and paclitaxel, otherwise known as taxanes. These chemotherapies are usually associated with side effects that can affect the skin and many other organs. Most notably, they will cause hair loss. They will also cause uh, painful fingertips, in some cases with loosening of the fingernails and infections in the nails, and also something known as peripheral neuropathy or pain in the, in the tips of the fingers and in the tips of the toes with a sensation of pins and needles. Interestingly, these can be prevented with the use of certain therapies, such as uh, uh, cooling of the hands and the extremities. Also, another important uh, set of side effects is this diffuse and migrating pain that can occur in people receiving these taxing therapies, which can also be mitigated through the use of systemic medications in the form of tablets, uh, that are prescribed by your oncologist or a pain specialist. Uh, hair loss during taxane chemotherapy can also be prevented with the use of these recently uh, cleared uh, devices by the FDA that um, are applied onto the scalp and they circulate this very cold liquid preventing the, uh, the, the delivery of the chemotherapy to the hair follicles thereby preventing the so-called chemotherapy-induced alopecia or hair loss. Now, uh, the most uh, uh, significant advance in the past five years have included the development uh, of the so-called immunotherapies, as Dr. Dunn uh, defined, and these drugs can cause all sorts of remarkable results in terms of their cancer, but also the unleash a person's own immune system to attack uh, potentially every single organ in their body at some point. Thankfully, uh, in most cases, severe side effects are relatively infrequent in less than about 10% of patients. These side effects include, as Dr. Dunn mentioned, autoimmune diseases. In other words, your own body your own body's immune system is attacking certain organs in your body. The most commonly affected ones will be the skin, and which will manifest in the form of an itchy or scratchy rash, which can be easily treated by your oncologist with either topical medications or oral medications in the form of tablets that uh, uh, suppress the immune system. Also, uh, you can uh, develop autoimmune colitis. In other words, uh, your immune system is attacking your intestines, and this can result in diarrhea and abdominal pain, which can also be treated by suppressing your immune system through a prescription from your doctor. Also, other organs uh, can be affected, such as glands in your body that produce these very important hormones that may be responsible for maintaining the uh, sugar in your body or by maintaining the energy in your body or uh, your thyroid gland, for example. These can all be affected, but thankfully, again, there are many ways that your oncologist can remedy these if they are indeed affected by your therapy. And then uh, also 
uh, your uh, nervous system can be affected. And some people have developed these uh, side effects that uh, can affect their nervous system and uh, can lead to uh, people being hospitalized and their their body not responding to the, the to their own commands in a certain way. But again, thankfully, these are very rare conditions that can be improved with the care of your oncologist team. And uh, in some cases, uh, with uh, consultations by other specialists. For example, if you have a rash, a dermatologist may be able to help. If you have the um, inflammation of your intestines, a gastroenterologist may also be called in to help, and so forth and so on with endocrinologists or specialists in the glands. Now, the majority of people will have a good quality of life with these immunotherapies. Joint pains are relatively common as well and can be treated with anti-inflammatory medications in the forms of pills or tablets. And uh, these events will usually resolve over time as therapy goes on. Believe it or not, there are usually two good things about uh, these side effects, in particular those that affect the skin and the intestines. The first is that people who develop these side effects, it's usually an indication, at least it has been demonstrated in conditions such as melanoma, that the drug is more active in your body and that you will have a better response in terms of the cancer being attacked than people who do not develop these side effects. So that is at least something that gives people some comfort in knowing that although they are perhaps um, being debilitated by a side effect, knowing that the medicine is being more active. And the second thing is that these uh, side effects tend to be, although not always, worse at the beginning within the first two to three months of therapy. And then they either get better over time or your oncologist is able to manage it so that you can continue receiving your therapy. And in fact, these side effects are so important in terms of uh, uh, indicating that your immune system is active that some people only need to receive a few doses of these immunotherapies in order for them to have a very long-lasting response. So therefore, it is very important for anyone receiving immunotherapies to notify their oncologist team so that side effects, side effects can be treated early on and effectively so that your quality of life is maintained and the drug, if possible, can continue to be administered. And then finally, Dr. Dunn also described very clearly the remarkable uh, contributions of these new therapies that were approved in the past five to 10 years for advanced basal cell carcinomas called hedgehog pathway inhibitors. Despite these uh, interesting names, these therapies do have a significant effect in controlling these skin cancers that cannot be controlled with surgery or radiation. Unfortunately, they are associated with a constellation of side effects that can be problematic. However, I believe that early intervention may mitigate the majority of these side effects. Hedgehog pathway inhibitors, such as uh, sonidegib and vismotegib, can be associated with thinning of hair on the, on the scalp. So hair loss can be a side effect that can be long-lasting. 
they can also be associated with muscle cramps. Thankfully, there are pills that can be taken uh, that are also used to control blood pressure that, uh, and, and certain uh, conditions in terms of heart rate that are able to uh, relieve these muscle cramps in people receiving drugs like this Motajib or Sonidegib. And then people can also experience a very interesting side effect, which is that the taste buds, for some reason, do not work properly. And people say that uh, whenever they eat, they can't really taste their food, or if, or if they do taste their food, it has a very unpleasant taste uh, or, or lack of taste altogether, and that water tastes like cardboard or metal. In these cases, what is recommended is for people to alter the way they prepare their foods. For example, it is recommended for people who are taking these medicines for advanced basal cell carcinomas to um, resort to using uh, plastic, uh, plastic um, uh, forks and plastic spoons when eating to not eating their foods uh, so warm or hot and to allow their foods to cool so the flavors are more um, uh, easily uh, perceived. Also, it is recommended to spice up the foods, to add additional spices in your recipes. And when drinking fluids, it is recommended to add some flavoring to these fluids or drinking uh, um, uh, fluids that already contain some type of uh, special flavor uh, that uh, will make it uh, more uh, acceptable and tolerable. And then uh, along with this, uh, with this uh, lack of taste, it is also important to remember that these drugs by themselves can cause significant weight loss independent of the uh, effects on the lack of taste. Therefore, for those of you that uh, are taking these medicines, please feel free to uh, uh, have the liberty of eating your favorite foods that you may not have been eating before because they had a high calorie content as it is very important to maintain your weight, your body weight, as this is very important for many functions in your body, especially during this uh, difficult time uh, when you are taking these medicines. And then uh, as a whole, many of these medicines can make your skin more sensitive to the sun. So it is important to remember that uh, if uh, you are going outside to not go unprotected between the times of 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. And if you are going outside to use a broad-brimmed hat, sun-protective clothing ideally, so that cover your arms and legs so that you don't develop uh, sunburns. With the so-called immunotherapies, uh, it's important to remember that your immune system is going to be more active so what could have been a mild sunburn could perhaps become a more severe sunburn and more painful or itchy, so it's important to prevent it. And then, of course, the use of sunscreen is recommended with a sun protection factor of at least 30. And uh, remembering to apply enough of, sun of the sunscreen every time, about 30% of people who use sunscreen really use it in the appropriate manner. So it is important to remember that you need to apply about uh, uh, one ounce or, or about um, a small cup of coffee every time 
you apply sunscreen to your entire body, and that should be repeated every two hours or every hour if swimming or sweating. And then finally, I also want to reiterate that your oncologists, like Dr. Dunn, they work tirelessly to try to manage uh, these, uh, this cancer and the many uh, side effects and forms that it can uh, have and the effects in your body. So it is very important to communicate with them any symptoms that you may be having, whether you think they are related to the medication that you are receiving or even if they are not or, or you are not sure whether they are related because in most cases they will have tools that may help you and may help them mitigate these, uh, these uh, symptoms or associated conditions so that you can live your life in a more comfortable and fuller way and not be affected by things such as pain, uh, diarrhea, uh, being very tired or being very itchy or having a rash that can negatively affect your quality of life because at the end of the day, the quality of life is also uh, very important. And addressing this is paramount in every oncologist's mind when treating you and um, trying to make your life better. So uh, with that, I would like to uh, conclude this section and um, would like to uh, thank you again for your attention. And um, we look uh, uh, forward to your questions and comments. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lacatur. That was excellent and very, very helpful for people in terms of their coping with side effects, lots of tips for people. And I know there'll be more questions for you during the Q&A as well. Before we take questions, I'll start to kind of make, uh, make notes of your questions. Um, I, um, I do actually want to say a few words about cancer care and its services that maybe it helped to somebody on the call. Um, so Cancer Care is a national organization, so we provide services to people all over the country and um, all the United States, and um, those include um, financial assistance, and we also have a copay foundation. We offer also counseling services. We have a staff of oncology social workers, so when you call us, you're speaking with a trained oncology social worker who can talk with you about some of your concerns, um, about living with advanced skin cancer, about any type of cancer, any concern have, and that's available to both people living with advanced skin cancer as well as people living with all cancers and their caregivers and loved ones as well. Um, we also offer support groups, and we do them on the telephone and online. And the online groups are particularly attractive to people both in the United States and internationally because they actually are um, they occur not in real time. People can post, and they are all moderated by an oncology social worker, so they, all the posts are checked, and you are screened for those groups. But many people find them very helpful. We have over 120 online support groups running, so on every topic, and for many different populations as well, um, and uh, for both people themselves living with cancer as well as caregivers. Um, so just to keep that in mind as well as a service. And we have these, of course, educational workshops. We have lots of publications as well that you can access, and just lots of information on our website. So definitely, um, it's, a, it's a resource you to know about, and it uh, is a free service. And we have a, a phone, a, a hope line number, as well as a website, and you'll be getting all that information. So when you get your evaluation forms after the program, you'll be getting all that information, all the resources mentioned by our speakers, as well as all of our. Um, information in terms of the collaborating organizations and, of course, um, 
and all of the information of how to contact Cancer Care. So with that being said, we now have lots of time for questions, and I'm going to ask um, Ayala to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And uh, please do uh, uh, either post them online, you can do that, or you can follow on the tele- you can use the directions that Ayala gives, gives you, so how you can ask your questions. So Ayala. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, at this time, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one. Excellent. We have a question from our online participants. Um, I'm going to read the question. I'm going to direct the question to Dr. Dunn to begin with. Um, what is the likelihood of the development of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in someone with a history of actinic keratosis and autoimmune disorder or on immunosuppressants? And again, Dr. Um, Don will answer your question in a general way, um, and um, thank you for your question. So, you know, that's a good question, um, and Dr. Lockator may know better than me because I, I really don't follow people with um, actinic keratosis. I see people once their disease has become advanced. Um, I think that it's a fairly, um, you know, high risk um, if actinic keratosis are left untreated that they go on to develop um, at least squamous cell carcinoma in situ um, or squamous cell carcinomas that are localized. Um, it's very low risk that they um, they uh, that the squamous cell carcinoma will become advanced. Um, and even before squamous cell carcinomas become advanced, they spread to the local regional lymph nodes, and that's only in about 2% of patients with localized cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas will develop local regional lymph node involvement. And developing distant metastatic disease um, is very rare, only about 0.4% do. Excellent. Dr. Lacatour, thank you so much. And Dr. Lacatour, do you want to add to that? Um... Uh, yes, I think that's a, that was a great question, and I completely agree with Dr. Dunn. Uh, actinic keratosis are uh, otherwise known as these precancerous uh, skin lesions that are very common, especially in fair-skinned people. And uh, depending on how many a person has, the risk of those converting into a true squamous cell carcinoma, uh, the risk will increase. In other words, if you have less than 10 of these, the risk will be much lower than if you have, let's say, uh, almost 100 of these all over your skin. Uh, The risk in general is considered to be between 1 in 100 to 1 in 1,000 of these will truly become a squamous cell carcinoma. The question, however, is a very good one because this has not been properly studied in people that have an autoimmune disease and are likely to be receiving an immunosuppressive medication. As squamous cell carcinomas are more frequent in people whose immune system is being suppressed either by a disease or by a doctor prescribing a medication to treat an autoimmune disease. In other words, a very complicated situation, but the good news is that if a person with actinic keratosis and an autoimmune disease or under immunosuppression is being followed, 
every three to six months by a qualified doctor experienced with uh, skin cancers and how they manifest, most of these can be caught early on so that they do not really become a life-threatening problem or a problem that requires a systemic medication. Thank you both. This is wonderful, very helpful. I hope this is helpful and it was a wonderful question to start off with, so thank you. And we have another online question. I'm going to again give uh, this question to Dr. Dunn, and I'm sure Dr. Lacatur will want to add to it as well. What is the difference between cutaneous squamous carcinoma and metastatic melanoma? It's uh, the sorry. Uh, in terms of the question, it's what's the difference what's between the difference metastatic between squamous cell carcinoma versus melanoma? Between cutaneous squamous carcinoma and metastatic melanoma. What's the actual question? Okay. Um, so the so um, again, good question. There's different types of skin cancers depending on the cell that the cancer originates in. Um, so cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma means that the cancer originates in the squamous cells of the skin, whereas melanoma originates uh, within the melanocytes. Um, so it's a different type of cancer due to the cell that the cancer um, arose in. Excellent. And, um, and Dr. Lakatur, do you want anything or... Uh, yes, uh, I, I completely agree again with Dr. Don. I think this is a very good question. I think uh, the members of the audience have been doing a lot of reading as uh, these questions are getting better and better every time. Um, uh, squamous cell carcinomas uh, are from one type of cell in the skin and melanomas are from a different type of cell that is also present in the skin. In general, uh, melanomas are considered to be a much more um, serious type of disease, depending on the stage, however, but uh, than are squamous cell carcinomas. Squamous cell carcinomas, on the other hand, are much more frequent than are um, melanomas. So uh, both are to be taken seriously. Uh, and uh, ideally, if uh, in most cases, most squamous cell carcinomas can be treated with uh, surgery, uh, uh, whereas uh, many melanomas need to receive systemic therapy. So two very different diseases and uh, usually require two different types of specialists uh, to treat them. Excellent. Thank you. And we have a question for Dr. Lacatur. Um, so I have a prominent scar on my forehead that I am self-conscious about. What kind of treatments are there to minimize the appearance of it other than just covering it up? Okay, that's a, that's a question that really uh, I think is infrequently asked, but it's very important, which comes to, uh, comes to bear uh, and increases the attention of these uh, survivorship issues. Uh, and uh, thanks to the remarkable things that Dr. Dunn and her colleagues have been doing uh, with uh, curing and treating cancers, uh, people now uh, are focusing more on these uh, quality of life issues as, for example, disfiguring scars or prominent scars. Scars um, are a response that the body has to an injury 
in your case probably was a surgical procedure. Um, and uh, they, after you have a certain type of surgery, it takes about a year for your body to completely continue to remodel, what we call remodel or work on that scar. Now, after that year has elapsed, there are a number of things that can be done to improve a scar depending on what specifically you, you want to improve upon that scar. For example, if the scar is very red, uh, certain lasers can be used at a dermatologist or plastic surgeon's office to remove the redness. If the scar is very thick or hard or bumpy, uh, your doctor can also use other types of lasers or they can inject a substance into the scar that will reduce that thickness or itching or bumpiness. And finally, if the scar is very wide and kind of stretched open, really the best treatment for the scar is going to be a consultation with a plastic surgeon which is going to uh, conduct a procedure known as a scar revision in which essentially that scar is removed and cut out essentially and a new scar is placed that can be more subtly hidden within the lines of the skin, which will be less perceptible to others and yourself. So there are many options to treat the different things about a scar that may be bothering you, and it is important to seek attention from a, um, from a plastic surgeon or a dermatologist for these specific um, conditions. Awesome. Thank you. Excellent. Um, thank you so much. And. Um, uh, and uh, we have another question for Dr. Dunn. Um, I'd like to take part in a clinical trial. What do I need to do to learn more about them? Is there a database? Um, yes, that's a great question. Um, if you go to the website clinicaltrials.gov um, and under search, you type in um, advanced uh, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma or advanced basal cell carcinoma, you should get um, a listing of clinical trials that are available, and it will also list the centers where those clinical trials are open, um, so you can find a center near you. Thank you. Um, and um, I have another question here um, for um, Dr. Don and probably Dr. Lacatoris, well, I've heard about topical treatments for basal cell carcinoma. I'd rather not go under the knife. Would topical treatments work as well as surgery? Now, this is a, a, a course of this Dr. Don would only, and Dr. Lacatoris generally, and then we do advise you to go back to your treating healthcare team for the specifics about your situation. But if you could address this in a general way, that would be helpful. Dr. Don, to start, um, perhaps? Yeah, so, you know, I. Usually for these questions, I, I do defer to the dermatologist to um, manage the localized disease. Um, we do think that um, it's preferable uh, to have a surgical procedure, even a Mohs procedure, um, if amenable to a, a less invasive surgical procedure. Um, however, you know there there are times um, that given ones or a patient's other medical comorbidities, um, quality of life um, considerations, um, we understand 
um, that as you described it going under the knife or a more invasive procedure is something that would want to be avoided. Um, and so depending on the characteristics, um, the size, the depth um, of the um, of the lesion or even perineural invasion, um, it's something that the dermatologist um, can consider with the patient. Thank you. Dr. Lockator, do you want to add to this? Yes, uh, thank you. Again, I agree, and that's another great question. In general, uh, for basal cell carcinoma, there are several therapies that have been approved uh, to treat it topically. Uh, the, these are usually reserved for very early or what we call superficial basal cell carcinomas. They require the application of a cream to the area every day uh, for at least uh, three months or so. So it does involve some time on your part uh, from applying this every day. They can also lead to some inflammation of the area. So the area where the lesion is is going to become uh, inflamed, itchy, and in some cases a little bit painful. Uh, the benefit of it is that it really, if it works, and it works in about two-thirds of cases, is that uh, it leaves no scarring. Now, surgery, on the other hand, is a treatment that you go into the dermatologist's office usually. It, uh, you undergo a surgical procedure that should last less than uh, uh, half an hour, um, and then uh, you will have a scar that you will have to take care of that will usually fade over time. But the cure rate is much higher, about 95%. And you don't really have to uh, do much uh, after the first uh, week or two uh, other than use sun protection. So it, uh, it is something that is to be discussed with your uh, dermatologist. Uh, but keep in mind that one requires much more involvement uh, from the patient's perspective, and the other one is more uh, on the doctor's perspective in terms of treating it with surgery. Excellent. Thank you. These are actually wonderful questions, and I have to really commend both Dr. Dunn and Dr. Lacatour for really representing really a multidisciplinary team and addressing your questions, and it shows how really important it is for you to have to work with a team of doctors in, in addressing your concerns. And we have another question. This one I'm going to I'm give you Dr. Lacatour to start. Are there any hazards in using spray sunscreen? Um, the spray seems to saturate the air and is easily inhaled. Is this harmful to the lungs? Interesting question, Dr. Lacatour. Yes. Uh, so spray. This is a. This is another great question. Uh, so so sunscreens can be applied. Sun protection uh, can be offered in several ways. Uh, for me, the easiest uh, of all is sun protective clothing because sun protective clothing has been tested, and one there are uh, many different companies that provide clothing that has sun protection in them. And uh, also, uh, there are special hats that um, have sun protection in them. These are broad-brimmed hats that cover the ears, the neck, and have a broad brim, and those are very effective. And also, the clothing would be long-sleeved, and it's very light. In some cases, people can even jump in the water and uh, with these uh, special um, uh, uh, shirts, long-sleeved uh, shirts, uh, as well as the shorts. 
sunscreens, uh, the reason there are uh, spray sunscreens is because many people don't like to apply the, or lather this cream all over their bodies. And keeping in mind what we discussed previously, that sunscreens would need to be applied every two hours if outside or every hour if swimming or sweating. So it's a lot of work on, on the person's part. So aerosol or spray sunscreens were thought to be a better alternative because they would be much easier to apply. The problem with spray sunscreens is that the way that the sunscreens are tested, it is not possible to do so with one of these sprays. So we don't know really how well they are protecting uh, one's skin. And there is that concern, although perhaps it's not uh, as um, as uh, uh, real about inhaling the sunscreen. I am more worried about really whether they are being effective in covering uh, every uh, part of the body. But understanding that for many people just applying a cream all over their bodies is something they will not want to do, I would say that if you or you have a family member that the only way they are going to be applying sunscreen is with a spray, that uh, I think that's a good uh, negotiation and uh, for them to use that spray. Excellent. Thank you. And we actually have a telephone question. So, um, Ayala? Our question comes from Julia O. Your line is now open. If your phone is on mute, please unmute it. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Huh. Um, thanks. I wanted to ask more about the risk of local bleeding or systemic bleeding with Mohs and other surgical procedures. Thank you for that question. That's an excellent question. And Dr. Lacator, if you could address that question. Um. Yes, thank you. The question is about uh, uh, bleeding, the risk of bleeding with a procedure called Mohs surgery. And Mohs surgery is, uh, is, goes after the name of a doctor that developed a procedure in which uh, the smallest amount of uh, skin is removed, uh, but at the same time, uh, most of the skin cancer uh, would be um, c controlled by performing such a procedure. Uh, so it's a procedure that usually requires several hours in an outpatient uh, dermatologist's office, uh, and a little piece of skin is taken off. It's looked under the microscope. The patient waits in the room. Um, then the doctor goes back in, removes a little bit more, if more was seen in the microscope, and so on and so forth, until this is done usually between two to four times until the entire cancer is removed, and then the area is uh, closed with stitches or sutures. The risk of bleeding uh, with moles is relatively low. Uh, usually dermatologists have uh, very good experience in minimizing this by uh, using first um, anesthetics that also have epinephrine, which shrinks the blood vessels. And they know very well that it is important to control the bleeding so that um, infections don't occur and, of course, that uh, uh, the bleeding does not uh, affect a person's uh, own blood in, in terms of their blood circulating through their arteries and veins. So uh, it is considered to be a procedure that the risk of bleeding is uh, low uh, locally, 
And internally, of course, unless the person is on a blood thinner or has other cardiovascular disease, the risk of systemic bleeding is uh, almost uh, zero. Uh, so I, these are uh, very good questions. Uh, but unless one has uh, risk factors for bleeding, uh, they really should not be an additional uh, concern if one is to receive this type of surgical procedure. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, Dr. Tan, did you want to add anything to that? Or? Uh, no, I, I don't have anything to add to that. Um, no, I think that was a, a very thorough answer by Dr. Lockature. Excellent. Very well done. And the last question then is uh, one from one of our online participants. Um, and this one is for Dr. Lacatura. Is uh, basal cell cancer a precursor to melanoma? I've had a lot of sun exposure as a teenager and worried that I might have a high risk of advanced skin cancer. Uh, yes. So uh, another great question. Uh, but So by itself, uh, basal cell carcinoma uh, are not considered to be a precursor for melanoma. However, as this um, uh, 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 member of our audience has stated, they have received considerable sun exposure, which is a risk uh, for melanoma. So someone who has had basal cell carcinomas is someone that we know uh, has had a lot of sun exposure, so we should always be on the lookout for this person's um, uh, risk of melanoma. Interestingly, it appears that people's patterns of sun exposure uh, predispose them to different types of skin cancer. So intermittent and severe sun exposure may uh, predispose people more to melanoma, whereas people who have this chronic sun exposure, in other words, perhaps people who work outside may have a higher risk for basal cell carcinoma. So. It's not a good idea to be outside in the sun unprotected. It's never too too late uh, to start uh, being protected from the sun. And uh, yes, any skin cancer is a risk factor for another skin cancer in the future. Okay, excellent. Well, I want to thank um, both Dr. Dunn and Dr. Lacatura. You've really been exceptional, and you can't hear us applauding, but we are. Um, I also want to thank all of our participants, both those on the line and the telephone who asked such really great questions to truly enhance the call. Now, I do want to remind you that this is a one-hour program and that um, I know there are many more questions that, are, that you all have that you're waiting to get answers for, so I want to address that first. So for those of you who still have questions or even have a question like today or tomorrow or after the call or in the weeks ahead, so first of all, of course, your healthcare team is a wonderful place to start. Um, but I know many of you like to go to other places to get information. So for your medical questions that you may have, I always recommend the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have a number 1-800-422-6237, and you'll be receiving that actually with your evaluation information. And they also have a wonderful website, www.cancer.gov, with a live chat feature. So that's really helpful to people both U.S. and internationally as well because you can post your question, and they will actually get you all the resource information that you may want to have and a very credible source. And also, um, for those of you interested in more information about clinical trials, um, www.clinicaltrials.gov is a wonderful resource as well. Dr. Dunn gave that information out to you, and you'll get that also in your um, materials as well. Um, 
And then for those of you who'd like to pursue further information about cancer care services, I would also here at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And for those of you both in the U.S. or internationally, you can post a question on our website. Um, we also have different, for the online support groups, you can actually register for those groups online. So that's another option that you would have as well. Now, we have a program coming up. There's a part two of this program. So this part two is on emerging treatments for metastatic melanoma. That's on June 15th. And so welcome you to participate in that program. Same time, 1.32, 3 p.m. Eastern time. And we also have a program on cancer perspectives on survivorships, or current perspectives on cancer survivorship, on Tuesday, June 19th. Um, same time as this one. And I, you'll be getting information about those, and some of you have signed up for them. But if you haven't, that they're, um, I just want to call your attention to them. As we conclude the program, I don't want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with uh, cancer, with skin cancer, with advanced skin cancers. I want you to know that you're now part of a community of support and we're here to help you. And there are lots of resources for you. So in those moments when you're feeling alone and don't feel like there's anyone out there to help you, please know that there are all of these resources and we are here to help you. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.